don't you grab a Bible if you've got one near you. Open up to Exodus chapter 10 this morning as we continue on through the Exodus in our own Exodus of sorts next Sunday. <laughs> well, I've been looking at the weather and Thursday, Friday, Saturday now. Yesterday it said it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday we were gonna have rain and I thought, no. And it seems to have moved forward. So we are planning next Sunday to be out on the hillside at 8.30 and at 10.45, so the normal service times from uh, an age ago, you might recall, we used to meet here at 8.30 and 10.45. We're gonna do that again next week. We'll have two services next week out here on the hillside. It may be a little damp, so bring a blanket, bring a chair to sit on. That's, that's up to you. I'm gonna give you a list of things. Uh, I told you last week, be watching for an email and an info bite, a video up on YouTube. That is yet coming. Had some particulars still working through this week and thinking through. So hopefully we'll have that out for you uh, later today or perhaps tomorrow, and you can look at that and, and think about what we're asking and what we're trying to do to, uh, to gather back together here. But next weekend, back together. What's been really amazing to me is the togetherness that we have been able to experience even this way. To know right now several different homes in the area and out of the area where people are gathering to worship together, to break bread together, and to be in the word together. And there really is a, a huge teaching here, not from the word, not from me as your pastor, but a teaching that the Lord has done among us to elevate the value and the importance of being together. And we are together in this season. We are together in Christ Jesus. We are together in spirit and in truth. But man, it's gonna be good to be together face to face next week. And for those of you who can't be, or who are not ready to be, or perhaps you are in a, a situation where you feel you're at, in more of an at-risk uh, group, we will keep live streaming. We're gonna keep bringing this to you. Now, we may have a caveat. Now, I might as well just tell you about this real quickly right now. We may have a caveat next weekend. We're trying to get either Wi-Fi out there or we're trying to be able to run from the camera all the way into the church to get it on a live stream. We're having a little bit of difficulty with that. So it's possible we may have to record first service and then we will immediately put it up on YouTube uh, right after that service is over. So you'd be, you'd be not live streamed, but you could still tune in. You'd just be on like an hour and a half delay. So we, I would love for it to be live. I like the idea that we're together and that we're experiencing at the same time. Um, but we will be sure that the entire service is available for you next week, one way or the other. So more on that later, and keep your eyes open, again, for an email or for uh, that info bite that will be coming out this week. Exodus chapter 10. Let's, let's get into the word and focus in on what I believe the Lord wants to speak to us today. I have marveled at how his word continues to fall right at the, for me, at least in my life, I hope for you, right at the right time. How, how purposeful and intentional the Spirit is to have us where we are. So Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, which reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over all the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. 
So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Happy Fourth of July weekend. This is, this is the weekend where we Washingtonians celebrate two things, actually. We, we like to celebrate, as Americans, our freedom, you know, July 4th, Independence Day. So we celebrate freedom. Remember, our freedom was first blood-bought by Jesus. We draw back to him. It is a freedom that allows us to live in this life because we have already been set free for the eternal. We are set free for heaven. We have that heavenly home assured, and nobody can take that from you. No law can tear that from you. No mandate, no president or potentate, no governor or world leader can take away the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. And that's a marvel of Christianity right there because in any country in which you live, you are free. We count ourselves free as Americans. Well, we're not free so much as regulated these days, but there is a freedom in Christ that depends not on your country or your culture, it depends on Jesus. And we celebrate that, and, and we love to shoot off the fireworks and to, and to recognize that we are a free people. And in that freedom, and you've already heard rumblings of this, in that freedom, we are free to give up our freedom to serve and love one another. Free to give up our independence, free to set aside our personal rights as Jesus did so that we can love each other better. As we gather next week, we're gonna ask you to do that in some ways, to set aside what you want, what I want, what our personal comfort zone is, set some things aside that we might love each other more and serve each other more. I'm not gonna say any more about that right now, but again, be watching for that. And remember, we are free in Christ Jesus. But I said we celebrate two things, especially as Washingtonians here in the Pacific Northwest, we celebrate freedom. But the second thing we celebrate is the real beginning of summer and sunshine. And here we are yet again, July 5th, and it's summertime. Finally, we see the sun, and it's a clear blue day, and it is beautiful. Man, the sun comes out, and so do we. Man, we sail, we trail, we bail on indoor life for the entire summer. It's, it's amazing to me, and it really is a different mindset. I grew up in Southern California. Sun was out all the time. You didn't even think about it. You know, in the summertime, I've told you before, you know it's summer in Southern California because people wear, or, or you know it's wintertime because they wear their dark-colored shorts. I mean, that's the only difference, right? But here in the Northwest, man, when the sun comes out, we hit the bikes and the trails and we are out on the water and, and we are out at the beaches and, and it's just people just go nuts being outside. And then, you know, late September, October comes and the fall comes and we just disappear. You don't see anybody for like, you know, six or seven or eight months. Where'd they go? Well, they're Washingtonians. Oh, I get it. <laughs> and we hole up and then the sun comes out. And so we celebrate the sun. We love the sun. So did the Egyptians in a different way. The Egyptian people called him Ra, the sun god. They worshiped Ra, the sun god. Now we've talked about the complete debilitation, the utter devastation of all the gods of Egypt leading up to right now. But now with this plague, the ninth plague with the plague of darkness, 
God, our God, the one true God, takes on Ra. Ra, the sun God. He was seen as a man's body with a falcon's head. You can see this in Egyptian artwork and ancient Egyptian uh, carvings. A man's body with a falcon's head crowned with a large solar disc with a coiled cobra around that disc. And that's the idol of Ra. Now, Ra could also be portrayed as a ram, as a phoenix, a heron, a serpent, a bull, a cat, a lion, or even a beetle. John, Paul, George, Ringo, I'm not sure which one, but he could even be a scarab beetle there in Egypt. Ra was a theistic menagerie, pretty much a build-your-own-critter god. But he was the main god, the chief god. By Moses' day, they referred to him as Amun-Ra. Amun-Ra was a, a fusing, really, of two gods, the earlier uh, belief in this god Ra, and then this god Amun. And Amun was the double cone-headed god of Thebes. <laughs> You've ever seen a picture of Amun? Literally two cones popping off the top of his head. You know, kind of a Saturday Night Live view of God, I guess. So you've got Amun and Ra, but they, they fused into Amun-Ra, the sun god, the chief god over all of Egypt. There was even an ancient hymn written for him in, in ancient Egyptian works that reads, Lord of truth, father of the gods, maker of men, creator of all animals, Lord of things that are, creator of the staff of life, Ra, Ra, Ra. Sisboomba. <laughs> Every night as the sun set, because they equated Ra with the sun, the sun was Ra, the sun was believed to be Ra, rising and setting, and, and this is what they believed, the story goes like this, that the Egyptians thought Ra, as the sun set, would sail a sunboat through the underworld at night. And as he sailed through the underworld, he went into battle with Apophis, a god we've mentioned before, the demon serpent god and embodiment of darkness, Apophis. And so Ra and Apophis would duke it out all through the night until the rising of the sun next morning, which proved that Ra was victorious over Apophis. I can't even imagine being a priest of Egypt and having to know all these different gods and stories, and it's really kind of ridiculous. Now, we already saw Apophis swallowed up by the rod of Aaron early on, even right before the plagues truly began. But again, the Egyptians held that every morning it was proof that Ra was victorious over Apophis. Until the day that Moses stretched his hand toward the sky. And on this day, darkness, a darkness which was felt, crushed their last hope in their gods, took down the power of their highest God. In fact, think of it this way, it destabilized, it destroyed, it undermined their entire national worldview. For this to happen, by sensory deprivation, again, cultural destabilization, and a spiritual disorientation, this plague of darkness, which some writers have indicated would produce an extreme foreboding, an anxiety that, that some greater disaster was about to fall. 
a sense that what's coming, that fear of what is completely unknown, but a power far greater than ever experienced is at work and it's not a power on your side. It's an absolute terror of what we do not know. Imagine being there. You know, it's easy sometimes to read biblical stories and not sense how real they were to the people experiencing them. Imagine being an Egyptian on that day. Perhaps you happen to be just below the palace as Moses walks out and lifts his hands to the sky and in a moment in the marketplace, in the courtyards of the homes throughout the land, immediate just darkness. How terrifying. You wouldn't be able to find your way back home. You'd be literally stopped right where you were. Imagine the impact on that culture and on that society, on the mentality, on the spirituality. This was no game with extra lives that you could hit restart. This was serious business. In fact, let me just read to you. This is Psalm 78, and it's a psalm of Asaph, and Asaph is giving an historical warning to the people of Israel, reminding them what God had done for them in the past, but a warning to them in the present. He said in Psalm 78, 42, they did not remember his power or literally his hand. They didn't remember his hand. Yod is the word there. The day when he redeemed them from the adversary. Psalm 78, verse 43, listen to this. When he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan, and turned their rivers to blood and their streams they could not drink. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. And he gave their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hailstones. We've seen all these. We've been through these plagues. We've studied this recently. And their sycamore trees with frost He gave over also their cattle to hailstones and their herds to bolts of lightning. There's a little insight from Asaph that as the hail fell in the last plague and the lightning struck, that some of the lightning struck the herds. Man, talk about charred beef. And he sent upon them his burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels. He leveled a path for his anger and he did not spare their soul from death but gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn of Egypt, the first issue of their virility in the tents of Ham. Do you remember his hand of power? See, Asaph is saying, Israel, folks, we are getting away from faith. We are losing faith because our eyes are on the world and we're not seeing what he has done already. Man, one of the best things you can do when you feel like the darkness is closing in is you stop and remember what he's done. Remember the hand of God in your life previously. How has he gotten you even to where you are right now? Man, I look back over my 55 years and I think, how did I get here? Many times where I I look back and think, I shouldn't have survived that. I shouldn't have made it through that. that. Those were dark times and yet here I am. Why? Because the hand of God. The hand of God has seen me through. Do you remember the hand of God in your life? Man, it is so important, eternally important that we not forget. 
that we love, and note this, we love and we follow and we serve the same God who leveled a path for his anger. The same God who showed forth his power in all of this that we have been studying. These are not quaint stories of a distant time. This is reality. This is what God did in a land and to a people who absolutely rejected his name. That hand is gonna move again very soon. That hand will be upon this entire world in a way we understand, Revelation 6 through 19, far surpasses his hand on Egypt. Do you remember his hand? The hand that leveled a path for his anger. I'm telling you that not because we are to be afraid. Remember, we are free in Christ, but we are to fear with a holy fear. We are to trust with a righteous confidence that God who leveled Egypt, who will level this world, he is our God. He is victorious. There is no Amun-Ra, Sisbumba, or any of the other fizzled out duds that we've seen. That phrase, Sisbumba, by the way, just for you who are curious about it, I looked it up, I had to know. It was first penned back in 1867 and it was a cheer that went up when people were doing fireworks. It was a cheer, the whole idea was sis, boom, ba. The sis of the rocket firing into the, into the sky, the boom, and then followed by the ah of the people, sis, boom, ba. <laughs> and that's, it became that kind of cheer phrase. We don't really say it so much anymore. Actually, if you think back, uh, it was Johnny Carson who answered the question, sis, boom, ba is the answer, and the question is, what is the sound of an exploding sheep? That's kind of a different view, uh, apparently. But while all the other gods and idols and images, they, they popped and they crackled and they fizzled out like bad fireworks, Yahweh, Yahweh is immediate and Yahweh is everlasting. Fireworks are over and done. These gods, over and done. But Yahweh, remember, I didn't reveal myself, he said, to Moses or, or to uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I didn't reveal myself to them as Yahweh. I revealed myself to them as El Shaddai, God Almighty. I reveal myself to you as Yahweh, immediate, present, and forever. Always here. Always with you. That is one of the greatest truths and realities of my entire life. The always withness of God, no matter how devastating life around me may seem. No matter how bad things can get, God does not vanish away like these gods of Egypt. Yahweh is here. Yahweh is with us. And he has another name, doesn't he? A name by which we have come to know him in a dramatically personal way, the name of Jesus. The Hebrew pastor said in chapter one, verse three, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. That is Jesus, our Jesus. Now, before we get to that radiance and I wanna get there, we need to go dark. That is, we need to unpack this, this darkness and there are several implications of it 
see how these apply to you and, and see how these were implicated at the time. Go back to verse 21. We read again that then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. Now, first of all, if you have an NIV translation, this is one of those areas where the NIV mistranslates. It says that stretch out your hand and the darkness will spread. That's a bad translation because it is not stretch out your hand that the darkness will spread out as like a deepening gloom in the late afternoon and into the evening or as a storm comes on, even as the hail approached or the locusts came on the land and it got darker and darker as the locusts were there. This is not a darkness that would spread. This is stretch out your hand that there may be darkness. So implication number one, this was virtually instantaneous. This didn't come on slow or through the day or into the evening. This was virtually instantaneous, sudden, immediate. Moses raised his hand and it just was. Contrast that to Genesis chapter one, verse three, as when God said, let there be light and there was light, immediate light, not that it came on like the gradual light of the dawn, but just let there be light and it was pure light. And now, stretch out your hand that there may be darkness, virtually instantaneous. Light didn't fade in back when God created light. Just as here, light doesn't fade out. God pulls the plug, and it just goes dark. As I said earlier, wherever they were, in the marketplace, at the job, somewhere in the palace, wandering the, the hills or, or, or valleys of Egypt, Sudden, immediate darkness over the entire land. Farmer out in the field trying to figure out what he's gonna do after the locusts destroyed the crops and suddenly, boom, dark everywhere. The Bible says, 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, what that tells us is you could say Yahweh up and pulled out of Egypt. See, something the world doesn't understand right now is God is present in this world. His spirit is present in this world. He causes the sun and to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. People are blessed by the very presence of a God they don't even know because he's here. And he is present among us and his spirit is active and moving and working throughout this world. He's right here with us. But when God pulls out, things go dark. God up and moved out of Egypt and we see here a darkness which may be felt. How do you feel darkness? I mean, I've been in dark places. I've been in caves that were so ultra dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. This is a darkness which may be felt, a hosek. Hosek is the Hebrew for darkness, and which may be felt is an interesting word. It's yames. Hosek yames, a darkness which may be felt. Yames is literally groping about. So you could translate this a darkness for groping about. Implication number two. Number one, this was virtually instantaneous. Number two, they were visually impaired. A darkness which may be felt, they could see nothing. There wasn't even a hint of light that could get into the cornea for refraction. You gotta have light for vision, right? 
our eyes don't just create sight. Our eyes have to have the input of light that we can then see as it reflects within our eyes. It's a remarkable um, creation. Do you realize the eye alone is, is so intricate and so perfectly designed. There has to be a creator. We, we couldn't even come close. We can't touch creating the eye. It's so overwhelming with its perfection and intricacy and the way it works, but it requires light to work. And if, light, if the refraction is busted, the rods and cones are fried, if the internals of the eye are not functioning, they can't refract the light and you can't see, even if there is light. But where there is no light, there's nothing for the eye to work with. So you have nothing but absolute blindness. You gotta have light to have vision. Proverbs 15.30 says, bright eyes gladden the heart. And I like that. The heart is glad when you can see. It's when we can't see that we become anxious, that we become fearful, that we become worried. We can't see what's gonna happen tomorrow or the day after that or the day after that. Bright eyes gladden the heart. Being able to see. Jesus said in Matthew 6.22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. It's a darkness which can be felt, a darkness for groping about. If you are dark inside, you are unable then to refract the light of the truth. Now, Jesus, when he said that, he's talking about spiritual insight. He's not just talking about physical blindness. If your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. That if you're, not, if you're not able to see the light, you go dark. Now, I've experienced that in my personal life as a follower of Jesus. I have experienced that. I have gone dark. Close my eyes. Be it because of fear or dread or, or an issue in my own life. And when there's darkness and I'm not able to see the light of the truth, well, I'll tell you what, my heart is sorrowful and heavy and weighed down. The physical principle and the spiritual principle, exactly the same. If no light is coming in, there is no vision for looking out. Without the light of Christ, I cannot see even in this life. Jesus is my ability to see with clarity and understanding and comprehension. Moses will later warn the people of the effects of dark disobedience. He'll say in Deuteronomy 28, verse 29, you will grope at noon as the blind man gropes in the darkness. No doubt when he says that, he's drawing off of the memory of the darkness that was over all Egypt. Isaiah, likewise, warned that because of rebellion in Israel, Isaiah 59, verse nine, therefore justice will be far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight among those who are vigorous. We are like dead men. That's a picture of what was happening during this time in Egypt. People trying to find their way back home, groping along the wall, bumping into people, not knowing where they were. Can you imagine a darkness for groping about? 
And it is a simple but profound biblical truth for today, for the day in which we live. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. People are groping about in the darkness today. They don't get it. They can't see it. It makes no sense to them. By the way, Paul used a comparable word to this idea of groping about, of this visual impairment. When he was standing on Mars Hill in Athens, he tried to explain why God created mankind. This is what Paul said, Acts chapter 17, verse 27, that they would seek God. That's why he created us, that we would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. What's fascinating to me in reading through Acts and Paul's experience on Mars Hill in Athens and then what happens immediately afterward this sermon, and we talked about this back when we studied Acts 17, this sermon was philosophically brilliant. He even quotes from the Athenian philosophers. It's a brilliant uh, form of prose and, and, and narrative as he's speaking to the people and the use of his, his intellect, it's fantastic. And it didn't work. And very few came to faith at all in Athens. And I tell you that because it was lacking the one key thing that Paul himself realized as he traveled on down to Corinth, as he wrote to the people, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he said, when I came to you, brethren, and he came directly from Athens down to Corinth, he said, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you know what? The people of Corinth could see. As they received Jesus, as they heard the message of the cross, a church was born there because people could see. Paul left Athens in blindness because all the brilliant philosophy doesn't bring light to the eyes. All the philosophical brilliance of mankind is just a groping about It's Jesus, it's the cross that illuminates the love of God. So verse 22, God says there's gonna be this darkness which can be felt, this darkness to grope about in. And verse 22, so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Moses now adds two pieces of information to what happened in this description of the darkness. First of all, the duration. Two times in verses 22 and 23, he says it lasted three days. A darkness of three days. The only other plague that gave any duration at all was the flow of the bloody Nile. Seven days. So the blood flowed for seven days and the darkness which they groped about in lasted for three days. And we'll see more how absolutely debilitating it was. But the second thing Moses says here that he adds here to this darkness for groping about is he calls it thick darkness. It was a thick darkness. Interesting use of words there. Afelah. 
in the Hebrew is thick gloom. It's it's like a heaviness. My daughter Hannah has has a blanket. I, I I've never heard of these before. hadn't seen one of these, and apparently it has these tiny little uh, like beads in it, or 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 what are they? Like little tiny little marbles that are woven into the blanket, and the blanket's heavy. So like you you lie down, and you pull it on. And it's, it's some you know it's comforting. Cheryl crawled under it a couple of days ago, and she was just like, "This is good. I want one of these." And I'm like, "Fantastic." Never get her out of that. This, this heaviness, think about a darkness that is thick. It's, it's not comforting. It's, it, it just closes in on all sides. Afelah is a word that describes a darkness of depression by calamity. The worst thing has happened. And we sink down into this, this heaviness, this weight. And, and it's hard to get out of. Any of you feel like that in this season? I was talking with Doug Audie just this last week. And both of us recognizing, you know, there, there has been a time in this season, I've experienced it, where you realize, man, to, just to get out of this season requires some effort because it's, it's been heavy. I, the, the old book, The Phantom Tollbooth, I remember talks about what were called the doldrums. Getting out of the doldrums. Man, we get into that place and life gets heavy and weighty and the darkness and the gloom is thick and it settles in and it's, it's hard to move. It requires some focus, some energy, some pushing forward just, just to move because it's so heavy. That's what we're talking about here. This is more than just it was dark. This was a thick, heavy, weighty gloom. Isaiah the prophet said in chapter 8 verse 20, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Those who would reject the Bible, night goes on and on and on and never becomes day. They have no light to see, no light for the refraction of, of spirit to understand, to bring faith. Isaiah says in verse 21 of chapter 8, they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. It will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Man, we see people cursing our president and God as they face upward. We're seeing a playing out of this very prophetic word. Isaiah goes on in verse 22, says, then they will look to the earth. Well, do we not live in a culture that is looking to the earth? Earth day and earth celebration and the universe and all the rest, that'll save us or we will save it? Come on, folks. Behold, they will look to the earth and distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness because they have no light, the light of the truth. So what happened in Egypt we see spiritually taking place in similar ways among us today, a virtually instantaneous darkness causing visual impairment. Implication number three, this was vitally intrusive. Vitally intrusive. Look at verse 23. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Think about that. All the vitality of human life literally stopped for three days full days of thick, dark gloom. They didn't move. They didn't go out. They didn't sing a song, share a poem, stream a, a, a show. 
absolute other darkness that was paralyzing, I say vitally intrusive because very life itself came to an immediate halt, kind of like when we shut down. Everything, I remember driving home on the day of, that everything was to shut down. I was, I was here at the, at the church building. Don't, don't tell the authorities. And everything shut down. I remember getting in my car and driving home. And normally when I turn out on Troxel Road and I get to 20, hang a ride on 20, normally I have to sit there a minute or two. There's cars going up and down, and especially around between about 3.30 and 5 as people are going to and from the base. It's packed with cars, and there wasn't a car on the road. It was spooky, eerie. I was like, Oh, man. During this time, I have never seen Costco so empty. Just kind of weird. And, and you realize, especially early on, things just were shut down. Well, that's what happened. The vitality of life in Egypt was completely intruded upon and despair, mental despair and anguish, that sense of foreboding in that thickness, as we said before, it just filled the land. You know, I, I start to get a little bummed and distressed when a power outage in the evening goes past the second hour. <laughs> you know, and, and everything's just gloomy. I remember uh, two or three years ago we had, when the power was out and it was really bad, uh, up here on, on Whidbey Island. Now, it's been worse in other places in Washington State when we've had big windstorms and power's been out for people for a week at a time. We had three solid days, no power. And, uh, and we, at the time, using a generator just to keep our refrigerators going, so light really wasn't an option. So as the day dimmed into night, it just, the first day was kind of fun. You know, hey, this, this is cool, you know, power's out. Let's light the candles and play a board game. By the second day, it was getting heavy. By the third day, and this was having sunshine during the day, but then the night would come on and it just was like, oh man, how long is it gonna, you know, you're, and you're checking your phone every moment to see, does, does uh, Puget Sound Energy have some power up yet? Do they have an update, anything? Just this despair as life slows and slows. This was three days where it didn't slow down, it stopped. And you know, it's gonna be far worse in the great tribulation. Revelation chapter 16, verse 10 says, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened. That is everything that was within the reach of the beast. All of his kingdom on earth, which was, will be much of the earth darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. That's not just gonna be a darkness that can be felt. That will be a darkness that brings pain and anguish. The sun by that time in the tribulation will already have been darkened by a third. Imagine that if, if, if our sun today, beautiful, glorious sun was a third less bright. We get that on kind of cloudy days, you know? You know those days here in Washington when it, it doesn't rain, it doesn't even mist, nothing's happening weather-wise, it's just clouded over and man, it's hard to move. It's a little discouraging we, we say oh I need this is why we love coffee you know we got to have some energy because it sucks the life out of you and the entire world for much of the tribulation will be a third darkened and Jesus says Matthew 24 29 but immediately after the tribulation of those days the sun will be darkened that means it's going out 
and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I'll tell you what, you think these idols in Egypt were shaken by the plagues of God? Now the very powers of the heaven, the lights that we look up to, the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets will all go dark, will fall, it'll be horrific. And then he says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Why? Because he's light. Why will they see him? Everything else is out. And here comes the light of the world. He'll appear in the sky. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. For all the faithful remnant of Israel, what Jesus just described there will be the dark before the dawn. And this is the same the darkness before the dawn, that it gets so much worse before it finally gets better. Why is this the dark before the dawn? Because back then, this plague came right before death of the firstborn. Now you might say, well, that sounds like more darkness. Yes, for Egypt, but for Israel, guess what it signified? Passover. Passover. The plague of darkness was the dark before the dawn of Passover and freedom and release and deliverance. This truly was the dark before the dawn because of what follows for the Israelites. What follows for Egypt is death and sorrow. And it's the same thing when Jesus comes again, that all the powers are shaken. That's the dark before the dawn. And then Jesus comes in and for all who follow him, all who love him, and for the faithful remnant of Israel at that time, the new dawn of the new kingdom arises. But for all those who stand in rebellion, just like Egypt, it means death. It's the darkness before death. Verse 23. They did not see one another, nor did, they, did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. I love that phrase. I have that highlighted in my Bible, light in their dwellings. That's, a, that's the title of this teaching. I used the same title 16 and a half years ago when we taught through Exodus the first time. A light in their dwellings. I just love the sound of that. But listen, what it tells us is by contrast with the rest of Egypt, there was light in the dwellings of Israel in Goshen. What does that mean? My friends, that means that in the rest of Egypt, even oil lamps couldn't be lit. Fires couldn't burn. Torches were <laughs> torched. No light. It wasn't just that the sun was blocked over part of Egypt. This was a darkness that was supernatural and so powerful. There was no light anywhere. You couldn't grab one of your little clay oil lamps and, and ignite it so that you could at least have light in your house. No light anywhere. There's only light in the dwellings of the Israelites. This was a thick, dark lockdown for all of Egypt with the bright exception of Goshen. Implication number four, Israel was vibrantly illuminated. They had light in their dwellings. They had light in the day. They had no loss whatsoever of light, even though darkness would be on the edge. I mean, I wonder what that even looked like. That had to be 
more bizarre for an Israelite than for an Egyptian. The Egyptians just couldn't see anything. The Israelites in Goshen could look over to Egypt and like perhaps like a wall of water when they crossed the Red Sea would be nothing but a wall of darkness. And yet looking up from Goshen, there's the sun, there's the blue sky. They could look out toward the Mediterranean Sea and they could, they had light and they had light in their dwellings. This was a supernatural radiance. Now listen, some suggest, and I think there's good reason to think this, that this is actually the first appearance of the Shekinah glory of God. That what maintained the light in the dwellings of the Israelites, that illuminated cloud by day, fire by night, that would lead them out of Egypt, the same glory of God that filled the Jerusalem temple, The same glory of God that in the days of Ezekiel the prophet departed the temple and the Jewish people, Ezekiel 10 and 11. You know, it is actually a sad, dark irony that Israel, so vibrantly illuminated in Egypt, so wonderfully led out by the the light of supernatural presence of the glory of God himself, that Israel itself would lose the Shekinah glory, because their hearts went dark. And when the eye is dark, how great the darkness. When the heart cannot see, Israel lost the glory. Here's the faithfulness of God. That glorious light of his presence will return and will return to and for Israel Ezekiel chapter 43, verse one, he says, he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming up from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory, and you know who that is. That is none other than Jesus Christ, the exact representation of his nature, the very brightness of God, returning into Jerusalem, bringing that glory back to the temple, back to the people. Isaiah chapter 60, verse one. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you. His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And that speaks of the brightness and the glory of that millennial kingdom. Israel restored the very presence of God in the person of Jesus back in Jerusalem. Wow. But for now, for now in Goshen, Israel had light in their dwellings while there was none in all of Egypt. Verse 24, then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. So he's, he's caving now. But he's still compromising. And if you've been tracking with us through all of this, Pharaoh just keeps making concessions. Concessions to the Lord. I'll give this much, but not all. So now he's to the point where he's saying, okay, you can take your kids, but you gotta leave your cows. You gotta leave your flocks and your herds here. Why? He's holding on. As we saw midweek, compromise is not obedience. And judgment always falls hard on the one who tries to compromise or to commandeer the commandments of God. 
Christian brothers and sisters, understand, compromise is not obedience. And what I mean by that is if the Lord calls on you to do something, you come to something in his word, perhaps a, a way that you are not living in your life, but you recognize this is what the word tells you to do. And you say, well, I, I see that's in the Bible and that's very nice, but I'm gonna do this much. I, I'm not gonna do exactly what he's calling me to, but I'll, I'll do some, that's compromise. Compromise is not obedience. Compromise is not the fulfillment of the duty of a disciple, the following after of a disciple. I was talking yesterday even with, with my folks about, about duty and, and, and uh, obedience and these, these words that sometimes, you know, we don't like so much. I don't wanna have to do it, you know, out of obedience, like, like a husband and wife, and that was the conversation we were having. My mom talking about how she was, you know, willing to stay in California with my dad because he really wants to stay there. He's very content in their home. He built a life there. And, and so for him to move up, and, and she kind of would like to move up, but she was making the comment yesterday, but I'm, I'm here because I want to be uh, dutiful to my husband. She goes, but I don't like that word dutiful. I, I, you know, it's my choice, um, but I want to be obedient. I don't really like that word obedient. And I'm like, those are good words. Those are good words. We look at them as negatives in our culture because we don't want to be, you know, dutiful to anybody but ourselves. I don't want to follow after anyone but me. And so even when God says, Rick, here's what I want you to do in life, I say, I'll meet you halfway. My friends, meeting God halfway is not obedience, especially when he went all the way to the cross. He did everything for you and for me, which is why I am set free that makes me free to give up all rights and follow him as a bond servant, obedient to the call of God in my life. And so Pharaoh's the opposite. I mean, he's, he's trying to do one of two things that I see here. In saying, leave your flocks and herds here. You guys can go, take the kids. I'll, I'll make concessions there, but you gotta leave your flocks and herds here. It's one of two possibilities. One, he's still trying to control Israel to keep them from leaving. Or two, even if they do leave, then he can make up for all the flocks and herds that he's lost. That'll be my payment for what you've put me through, ensuring his economy has some livestock if, if Israel bolts once they get outside of the borders of Egypt. Do you ever do that? Lord, I give you everything except this. Lord, you have complete control of my life, but I'd really like to hold on to that. And it's not obedience. And by the way, note this, the one thing Pharaoh wanted to hold back was the one thing Israel needed to worship God. Verse 25, but Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore, our livestock too shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And he says, honestly, until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. He doesn't know because the law hasn't been given. He doesn't even know what the sacrifices are gonna require. How many of what kind of animal? He doesn't know about clean and unclean animals, what we're gonna do with that, who's gonna be offered up. We don't know. So we gotta take it all because God may require it all. Or he may require something, and if we've left it behind, then we have to come back and get it, you know? He says, we need our flocks and herds that we may serve the Lord. 
But that word serve, he says it twice. They are needed to serve the Lord. The word serve is abode, and it means service of worship. We have to take this with us to offer to him. Jesus said in John 4, verse 24, and we've quoted this so many times over the last few weeks, seems apropos, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I often think of that. To worship in spirit means that my spirit connects with his spirit and the spirits of my brothers and sisters, whether here or even separated. That's how we worship together, even apart, because we worship in spirit. And I always think, and in truth, I think the truth of his word. The truth of his word. And that's, that's right. But listen, am I worshiping in truth? Not only his truth, but am I worshiping in truth? That is openly and honestly before him, holding nothing back. All that I am is his for the taking, which means complete and total obedience to the call that he has on my life. To worship in spirit, yes, and in truth. All that I am is laid open and bare before you, Lord, to worship. Compromises or concessions of, of faith or in life diminishes worship. I show up and I throw out my worship songs and singing and I feel better and I go home. But if I have been making concessions in faith, my worship is not full. It's diminished. If I wanna worship God in bright freedom, then I worship him by giving him everything that I am all relationships, all holdings, all finances, it's all his anyway. And I give it to him to worship in spirit and in truth. We need the flocks and herds because we gotta worship God. So we're all going. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go and then Pharaoh said, get away from me. Behold, you do not see my, beware, you do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face, he says in utter, utter darkness, which is funny to me, the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said in verse 29, you're right, I shall never see your face again. Mm -mm. You know what? Moses is not just being snarky. And this is not like that scene from Home Alone. Do you remember the movie Home Alone where Kevin McAllister is in trouble and his mother says, I don't want to see you for the rest of the night. And Kevin says, I don't want to see you for the rest of my whole life. <laughs> and I, I, I look at this thing, is that what Moses is doing? Well, I'm not going to see you either, so whatever. Or perhaps what's really going on is Moses is being prophetic, not sarcastic. But he's saying, you're right, this is the last time. And by the way, that's the last time Pharaoh will see Moses' face. He will not see him again. And we'll see that as we roll into chapter 11 on Wednesday night. But you might ask the question again, why does the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart here? We're on the verge of something. Why does God harden his heart here? And back in verse 20, the Lord hardened his heart. And ahead in chapter 11, verse 10, and finally in chapter 14, verse 8, the Lord hardened his heart. Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? We've talked about this, but if you missed it, implication number five here is a veiled insinuation. 
a veiled insinuation, just as we saw, note this, that the hail implicated a hardening of Pharaoh's heart, like hard, cold hail, the hard, cold truth of the hard, cold heart of Pharaoh we talked about last week. So this plague indicates a heart of darkness. Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? It's already hard, and at this point, it is utterly dark. The most dark, blind, unseeing, undiscerning person in all Egypt was Pharaoh, who was supposed to be the son of Ra, the sun god. How utterly ironic. He was the one who was supposed to have vision. He was the one who was supposed to see. Ra's full name, by the way, was Ra Atum Kepri. If, if they were to speak his whole name, first, last, and middle, <laughs> Ra Atum Kepri, because, because they believed at sunrise, he's a little boy, Kepri. And then at midday, he becomes the falcon-headed man, Ra, and then at sunset, he's the elder Atum Ra'atum Kepri. But here in this plague for three days, no sunrise, no high noon, no sunset. But it was worse than this. It was worse than no sunlight at all. There was no light at all, as I said before. No light whatsoever. And please get this, note this, Darkness is not the opposite of light. It's not the yin-yang of Eastern mysticism. Darkness is the absence of light. Where there is no light, darkness falls. How will we see our way through these dark times? When we live in a world that is so spiritually dark, where the heart is growing harder and darker by the moment, how do we navigate these things. I want you to turn now in your Bibles to John chapter one and we will finish there this morning. John chapter one, the gospel of John in the New Testament. Everybody get your Bibles up. Everybody open up and turn to John chapter one. Yeah, you sitting in the corner of the living room thinking no one's gonna notice. I see, open your Bible to John chapter one and pick it up in verse one and you've gotta track this with me because this is the hope. This is where it's all going. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. If you skip down to verse 14, you know exactly who we're talking about here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is Jesus, no question. Verse four of John chapter one. In him was life and the life was the light of men. In Jesus is the ability to see. The light comes in. Light fills and floods the body. Brightness, light gladdens the heart. And the light, verse five, shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. That word comprehend, boy, does that not apply to the world that we live in. The darkness does not comprehend it. The darkness, it's paralambano, the, the dark, or catalambano. The darkness doesn't take hold of it. 
The darkness doesn't receive it. The light's there, but the darkness doesn't get it. Catalambano also means that the darkness doesn't overpower it, which is good to know. But the light shines in the darkness and the darkness doesn't have a clue. Down in verse nine, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. That is anyone who opens their eyes to the truth of Jesus, who allows the light into the body, now gets it, is enlightened. We talk about the enlightenment being that, that time of people coming out of the dark ages and all that. Listen, the true enlightenment is Jesus. And he enlightens any and everyone who turn to him and open their eyes to him. Jesus enlightens. Now, what that means for us on a practical level is Jesus informs us. Jesus instructs us. Jesus edifies, he educates, he illuminates, he encourages, he explains, he clarifies, he reveals. If you are clueless about any issue in your life, Jesus is the illuminator of what you need to know. And the turning to Jesus is what we need to remain an enlightened people. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, keep your Bible open in John, Matthew 10, 26, he said, there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. That's Jesus saying that. If you don't get it, if it's under wraps, if you're not sure about it or you don't understand it, I'm gonna get it to you. I'm gonna reveal it. He says, what I tell you, note this, in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. You know what I love about that is that he speaks to us in our darkness. What I tell you in the darkness, proclaim in the light. So when you're feeling dark and discouraged and depressed, he speaks even in the dark. Even in my cluelessness, he gives me the revelation I need. Why? Because he knows. He understands what he said. Back in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body and the body needs the light. And we need the light who is Jesus incarnate physically. We need the light soulishly. We need the light spiritually to see and comprehend and move through the world in whatever the season. Skip ahead to John chapter three. John chapter three, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And that is so painfully clear. Evil happens in the dark. Why is it that the worst trashings and destruction of the rioting that we've been seeing going on in our country happens at night? You don't see the big protests early in the morning. Martin Luther King marched in the morning. Martin Luther King marched in the brightness of day in full openness and transparency, and by the way, also marched in peace. That kind of protesting, I am down with. You wanna hold vigil? You wanna pray for our country? I was part of the March for Life back in Washington, D.C. in the 90s. And walking in that group of people, singing songs and laughing and talking together, and there was not an ounce of destruction. I think a few Christians may have littered a bit, and I felt bad about that. But besides that, <laughs> it was light. And there was nothing to hide but darkness and sin. Love each other. Evil deeds are done in the dark. Verse 20 of John chapter three, for everyone who sees evil hates the light 
and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Oh no, they'll see, they'll know. And it's absolutely true. Light exposes what's hidden in the dark. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested, that is seen as having been wrought in God, that is produced by God. I'm just open and honest. I'll tell you what, there is so much in this fellowship that has happened that I didn't do. And I can honestly and openly tell you, I didn't do that. I didn't build this building. I didn't design this church. I didn't meet the needs. I didn't make all the phone calls through this season. I've done my part. I've done what I know the Lord wanted me to do. But you know what? I can walk in the light because he is in the light. And I can be open and honest with you because anything good that's happening in my life, I know is happening because he did it. Wrought in God, produced by God. That word manifested, by the way, so that his deeds, anyone who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That, that means manifested, it means to be seen, but it means more than that. The word is from the root word phaino in the Greek, which means made to shine that I may be made to shine by the production of God. You come to the light. Man, we were, we were made to shine and, and not, not by any light coming out of ourselves. No, it's, it's reflection. The more we reflect the light of the glory of his presence, note this, the more we reflect his glory, the more we absorb his light. Now, I want you to think about that. The more we reflect his glory, the more we absorb his light. I can give you a physical example. We'll come up to it soon. Moses coming down the mountain was a glowing. Freaked the people out. They had him put a veil over his face because they were afraid. It terrified them. He literally physically glowed because he was in the presence of God. I ask you this question. If you physically glow because of the presence of God, what do you think is happening spiritually? What do you think is going on in a heart that has some dark places? You begin to glow. You begin to see, receive light in and within yourself, which is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3a, 3.18, we all with unveiled face are beholding as in a mirror the glory of God. We're looking and it's reflecting on to us as in a mirror and we are being transformed into the same image from glory, that is from his glory, to his glory as we're come, caught up to him, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We're getting glory on us. We're getting light into us. And it is a light that the longer we walk with Jesus, the brighter it gets such that the, the darkness cannot impede it, cannot get into it. And we come to this clear vision. And that is again why Paul says in Philippians chapter two, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. You appear, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Guess what? You appear as lights in the world as you hold fast to the word of truth because I'm reflecting his light and it is sticking it is getting in me. 
Oh, skip ahead now, John chapter eight. Just a couple of more places I want you to see before we're done, John chapter eight, verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So if your path is dark, you turn to Jesus. He is the light of the world. He will bring the light into you that is missing. He gives clear vision. He gives bright life. He gives glad hearts. Man, I'll tell you what, when I'm down, the restoration of joy that is the finest comes right from Jesus. And it's a joy that lasts. John chapter 12, verse 35, if you skip down, further down. John 12, where am I? I'm, I'm in eight still. John 12, skip over to John 12, verse 35. I hope you're noting these because I'm giving you something you can go back to. In the gospel of John, just to take a walk in the light, Listen to this, John 12, 35, Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. He's talking about himself. While you walk, while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes, but you have the light. While you have the light, believe in the light. Why? So that you may become sons of light. And there it is. That whole picture that is the light is reflected from me. The glory of God reflects off of me. The light stays in me. I become actually a son, a daughter's ladies of light. And what do sons and daughters of light do? They look like their father. Sons of light look like the light, who is Jesus. And again, we're reflecting and we are absorbing the light of life. In 1 Thessalonians 5.5, Paul says, you are sons of light. And what's interesting here is that 1,500 years before Jesus walked the shores of the Galilee and the hills of Judea, that thick, gloomy, groping darkness covered all of Egypt as a precursor of the final plague, death of the firstborn. Now, please don't miss this. How long was it dark? It was three days. That is, Ra, the sun god, Ra, you might say, the sun was out and in utter darkness for three days. But you know what? Another sun, S O N, went into darkness for three days as well, but he never went out. His body in the tomb, but his spirit yet alive, never dying, still bright. You know, our, our sun, S-U-N, like all stars, is just a big flaming ball of gas, and it is burning out. Scientists will tell you that. It will not last. No matter how hard we try to save the planet, our sun's burning out. Eventually, it would just go. If left to its own device, it would burn out completely. Jesus doesn't just give off light like the sun. He is light. And so the power and the energy and the force is all within him, and he doesn't lose it, which makes this final verse, note this, in John, most intriguing to me. John chapter 20, verse 1 now, on the first day, note this, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. You know what that tells us? <laughs> 
Churches will offer Easter sunrise services. And we might get it in our heads that with the sunrise came the resurrection. Not so. Jesus did not wait until it was light to rise from the dead. He rose while it was still dark. That's what happens to my heart when I give it to Jesus. I can be in utter darkness, but he rises while I'm still dark. He comes to me in the dark. He didn't wait for the sun to rise because Jesus didn't need it. He is the light of life. He brings the light of life. And you're not gonna find illumination or understanding or revelation anywhere else or in anyone else, only in Jesus. Will your body and your soul and your spirit be flooded with light? Please don't let this be some kind of esoteric, fanciful, spiritualized teaching. It is practical truth for anyone who's feeling the weight of this present darkness. Just listen to this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 tells us this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And you know what? One day in New Jerusalem, we're gonna find the remarkable truth that that city, Revelation 21, 23, has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God will illumine it and its lamp is the lamb. Jesus Christ, the full radiance of the glory of God. Do you want light in your dwelling? Do you feel like you're groping about in darkness? You wanna see clearly, comprehend with understanding? Do you want to think, and listen Christians, do you want to be able to think with all that's going on and all that's being imposed, do you wanna be able to still move and think with grace and truth? You will only find that in Jesus, only in Jesus. To discern rightly, because this is the darkness before the dawn. He's coming, and his coming is soon. And Ephesians 5.13 says, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, Paul says, it says, awake, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Father, the darkness seems sometimes just impenetrable. It seems encroaching. It's a heavy weight. It's such a picture, even in the non-believing world, of despair and gloom and depression. And Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ against these things. We pray for the enlightenment that is not some passing thing, but is true enlightenment that brings the light of life, that gives us clear vision and understanding. I pray for every person in our fellowship to be granted the enlightenment of Jesus. And anyone who's struggling just to cry out the name of Jesus or, or to say, Jesus, help me see. Jesus, help me be like you in this season. Oh, we need 
your light to flood our lives so that we can, in turn, love you and love each other with the kind of enlightenment that only comes from you. Because, Lord, honestly, left to our own devices, we go dark. We need your light. Would you, Lord, pour your light into us as we reflect it? May we absorb the light of your spirit. In Jesus' name.